0: Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your neighbor. We're going to talk about the church tonight, okay? Um, and we're going to talk about why church. And the title of the talk is What Church Should Be. Like, what should it be? And so here's what I want you to do. With your neighbor next to you, I want you to tell your neighbor what you think church ought to be. What do you think church ought to be? I'll give you about 15 seconds. All right, five seconds. Four. Four. Three, two, one. Hey, here's what I think. Here's what I know. I think a lot of us have our own opinions about what church ought to be. And many of those opinions are formed by the experiences that we have when we come. You guys know this just as much as I know this, that if you're walking into a church, you have some expectations before you even get there. You have this idea of what church ought to be. Or what should be. Many of you who have been a part of Bellevue for all your whole life, you have expectations as you walk into Bellevue, you know where to go, what to be, where to get the Dr. Pepper, all those kind of things. You know it's Mike Um Like that's where you, you know all of those things. But if you think about it, even some of our friends who have been coming to Bellevue or even coming to church for the first time maybe in a long time, Even you have expectations of what church ought to be. And so, as I thought about this, and as I thought about the lesson that we had this past Sunday with Stories of the Bible, we talked about the church in Acts 2, I thought, you know what, I think it would be really healthy for us to be reminded of what are some of the strong, well, actually six, biblical principles of what church ought to be. This past, um, when was this, Friday, this past Friday, I was uh, MOC, which MOC means minister on call. And basically, what that means is if anybody calls to church that has a need or needs somebody to pray with, or just, you know, uh, sometimes it's benevolence, they, they need money for something or gas in their car, that kind of thing. Uh, we have uh, staff members, uh, pastors that are on call. So the minister's on call. And I had it on this past Friday. And there was a young man who called from New York City. He called. Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He had seen uh, Pastor Steve's uh, sermons online and was just really overcome by them. And he, w- he told me this, this quick story about how, um, like he knew all the Bible verses. Like he, you know, I asked him, are you a believer? He said, yes, he is. And all those kind of things. And uh, he told me about a, um, a struggle he had seven months ago. And it was a friend that really let him down. I won't go into the, all the details of it, but he was really hurt by it. And had, it had caused him to really question his faith. He was like, Steve, could you give me some advice on how to like, handle the, the hurt that I feel for this guy who has really wronged me? And my very first question to him was, knowing that he's in New York City, I first, the first thing I thought was, where do you go to church? And he went, it went dead silent. And he said, Steve, I, Steve, church is just not for me. And I went, hmm, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem for him. And so actually I took some time to kind of articulate why church is so important. Because when you get into a family like this of like-minded believers, when you're going through a hard time, isn't it nice to know you have somebody who's there with you that can pray with you? that you can share that burden with someone and they can pray you through it and the Lord will lead you and guide you. That's one of the purposes of the church. And if you are finding yourself lonely and isolated like this guy was in New York City, he has no community, nobody around him to pray for him. He's starting to feel very lonely. And so what he's doing, he's reaching for church in all the wrong places. And so I encouraged him. I said, bro, there's a church right around the corner from you, Brooklyn Tabernacle. It is an amazing, vibrant church, and you ought to go visit it. And it's only because Jim Cimbala came here, and I, that's the only way I know. That's literally the only church I know in New York City. And so I was like, man, you just need to go to that church. He said, Steve, I'm going to try. I said, that's all I can ask for. And so I prayed with him, and we ended the call. But it just, it just showed to me the, 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 the importance of what church is for the believer. We need to have it. We need this, right? We need this. And there are so many people in our world that need it too. And so here's what I want to do. I want to unpack six biblical principles that describe how church ought to be. And as we go through the night, here's what I want you to do. These six principles, I don't want you, I mean, you can think about Bellevue if you want, but I really want you to think about you because that's what it comes down to. Because church is us. It's not a building. It's not like, you know, brick and mortar, that kind of thing. Although some of us have this idea that that's what it is. But church is us. And so as we go through these six principles, I want you to think about the church, but also want you to think about the church, us, all right? So here's principle number one. Uh, A church ought to be focused on Jesus. It ought to be focused on Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us this. This is one of my favorite passages. Therefore, since we are surrounded, such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's run with perseverance the race that lies before us. Keeping our eyes on who? It's right there. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him and during the cross-cornish chamber, sat down on the right-hand throne of God. That's it right there. The church ought to be focused on Jesus first. There's a reason why this is the very first principle, because it's probably the biggest and the one that we most we need to pay attention to, right? So when you're coming into church, is a church focused on Jesus? Let me talk about just a couple of quick hits here. When a church is focused on Jesus, it's not in your notes, but you can write it down if you want. One, it connects with other believers. When we're focused on Jesus, we connect with other believers. It also meets the needs of others in love. Like a church focused on Jesus is overwhelmed with love for each other. It devotes oneself to learning. Like when we get in here, we're focusing on Jesus. Why discipleship is so important in our church, being in a life group, that's so important because we're focused on learning more about the faith. It participates in people getting saved. A church focused on Jesus is going to, somebody's going to be getting saved. And man, we ought to celebrate that if you've ever seen me do a baptism. Of late, I get really excited, right? When we baptize at, um, at Beach Week... Good, that's nah, a party in the pool, y'all. I mean, that is a big deal. And we as a church get to participate in that. As we focus on Jesus, we get to see our friends come to faith in Christ. And then it celebrates God in worship. A church that's focused on Jesus is going to celebrate God in worship. Y'all, this is what it means to, when we walk into the church doors, that we are focused on Jesus first. And when we do that, the fruit of that is, just creates a sense of unity it creates a sense of all of who god is and we get to see him do the work we get to be a part of that that's the importance of church principle number two because i'm gonna go really fast through these because there's one i really want to camp out on all right number two selfless for one another you've heard me say this a church ought to be selfless for one another not selfish You've heard me say this from this little table more than once. It's not about you. It's not about you. Oh, yes, the Lord speaks to you, and yes, you do grow in your relationship with the Lord, but the reason why you're here is not about you. Ultimately, it's about Jesus, but it's also about someone else. Selfless for one another. It's amazing. When we have that perspective, when we really adopt that perspective that we're selfless for one another, we begin to see that the same spirit that's in us is the same spirit that's in all of our friends. It's not a different spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. It's that same spirit of God that's moving in me just as much as it's moving in them. And so why wouldn't I want to selflessly give and serve to other people? God's at work in them generosity ought to be a part of one of our first responses to this right selfless if somebody is in need what do i want to do i want to generously help them that's why the church is so generous in their time and their resources and what they do second corinthians 9 6 and 7 says whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and who sows generously will reap generously it's so good i'm I skipped one. Galatians 6.10, it talks about this. He says, therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong in the household of faith. That a church ought to be selflessly loving one another and serving one another. And I love this. When we have that idea that, that God can move in me and just as much as you, man, it's it's so awesome to see that There are ordinary people that are doing extraordinary things. And we would never see the story of someone actually doing the work of God. We would never see that if we had such selfish motives and we had tunnel vision and we made it about me. But when you are a part of a church, you get to see the work in Braden, you get to see the work in Wade, you get to see the work, like, you get to see the work of God in all of these people. And you get to participate that. In, but if you're so selfish about it, you will never see the story that God's writing in other people's lives. The story we just heard from Josie right there. How powerful that was. And we get to hear that and be encouraged by that and learn from that. But if we are all about us, as teenagers typically are, we're all about us, we will never see the goodness of God in someone else's life. So we need to selfishly one another. Number three. Are we concerned for the lost? Are we concerned for the lost? Acts 8, 4 says this. And so those were scattered, went on their way, preaching the word. Now, let me give you some context here. Saul had been persecuting the church. They were literally killing people. He was walking into the churches, and just the churches were scattering. And as the church was scattering, and they were going into the woods, literally, they were Sharing the gospel with the people that they were encountering. They were just going about saying, I gotta tell you who Jesus is. I gotta tell you who Jesus is. Another uh, example is later in that chapter, in Acts chapter eight, we see uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Great story. Uh, The the eunuch is literally um, in a carriage and he's reading the scrolls of old, the Bible, and Philip hears this and he stops the chariot and says, Hey, whoa, whoa, you know what you're reading. And Philip leads him to understanding the scrolls that he has been, and it was Isaiah, the chapter of Isaiah, and talked about Jesus, and he shared the gospel with him, and took him down to the, the water that was right over there, and baptized the guy. This is what it says in verse 34 and 35. It says, the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. You see the power of God's word and how it transformed this guy's life. We get to be a part of that. As a church, are you concerned about the lost people that are in our world? Many of you, many of you in this room have invited friends to come be a part of Exodus 15. And many of those friends have heard the gospel and their lives have been radically transformed. It's amazing to hear, this, hear and see the stories of these people that you are inviting. And we, do you care about that? Do you want to see their lives transformed? Because, you know, like I said earlier, God can change anyone, anyone. So how do we have, how do we express our heart for the lost? One, we look for opportunities, not in your notes, but uh, you look for opportunities to share God's story. You look for opportunities to share your story. You look for opportunities to discuss and answer questions with each other. You look for God to do the impossible, and you look for opportunities to care for others. Are you concerned for the lost? Number four, you ready? I'm telling you, I'm going fast. Are you ready? Number four, are you led by the Spirit? A church ought to be led by the Spirit. We talked a lot about this last week. How we invite the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us and to guide us. And as we walk into uh, this environment to be a part of church, that we would simply... Hello? How are you doing? Good to see you. um, That we would simply see the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to work within us. To take over and to take control, that we would be led by the Spirit. We see in Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my, I like this, witnesses. That's you, witnesses. I've seen God work and I need to tell somebody else about it. And that spirit that's within us will lead us to the people we need to talk to. It's uncanny how that happens. Number five, enduring through Difficulty. A church ought to endure through difficulty. Um, Acts 12.5 says this. It says So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. Now you see how Paul was literally a difficulty in prison. But what was the church doing? Were they ignoring Paul while he was in prison? They were mindful of him. And they were doing their very best to pray for them and to not just pray, but like pray fervently for them. I want to give you some, you can write these down. I'm going to go a little bit slower. I'm going to write these down. I'm going to give you some quick hits on how to handle if you're going through difficulty. Right? Some of you may be struggling with life, circumstances, schools coming to an end, you're dreading finals or you're in finals and you're like, Steve, this is the worst thing ever. I hate a difficulty right now. You're going through it. Here's some quick hits. You ready? You can write these down. Number one, uh, surround yourself in prayer. This is not in your notes. This is free. You need to surround yourself in prayer. Number two, take comfort that God is in control. If you're having a bad day, these are some great little quick hits that will help you out in the middle of these moments. Surround yourself in prayer. Take comfort that God's in control. Number three, Follow God's lead. Who's leading us anyway? The Lord. Let him do what he's good at doing. Number four, thank God for his faithfulness. Yes, in the middle of your storm, in the middle of your difficulty, thank God for his faithfulness. For his faithfulness. So surround yourself in prayer. Take comfort that God's in control. Follow God's lead. Thank God for his faithfulness. And last, return to a community of believers. Many times we believe or have tricked ourselves or the devil has deceived us, whatever one that is, that you don't, in the middle of difficulty, nobody cares about me. And so why would I come to church? Why would I be a part of a community of believers? Y'all, when you're going through a difficulty, don't you think that's the best place you should be? When life is hard out there, don't you think it ought to be good that you would come into the church and find a sense of peace, that you find some rest in the middle of the chaos of your storm and somebody pray over you, somebody encourage you, somebody speak wisdom into you. You would get under God's word, allow God's word to heal your heart. It's not a time to run when you're going through difficulty. Don't run from the church, run to the church. Here's the last one, number six. Principle number six: Overcoming. Oh, sorry, little burp. <clears throat> overcoming relational conflict. Overcoming relational conflict. This is where I'm going to camp out for just a bit. I might meddle, and I'm sorry. Because here's what I know. Here's what I know. You were a teenager and you are in relational conflict with someone in your life, whether it be your best friend, or maybe it's the former best friend, or maybe it's the former former best friend. Maybe it's an ex-boyfriend. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's the teacher that gave you the F. You are in relational conflict. There's someone in your world that you are really struggling with, and you're, you're probably sitting there thinking, Steve, if church ought to be this way, then how does this principle apply to the church? Because the church is made of people. And as people, we have a sin nature and we don't get things right. We make mistakes. We say things we shouldn't have. Good Lord, we're teenagers. We don't have it all figured out. And if you think you do, I'll, let you, I'll introduce you to Tom Ball. He's 77 years old and just loves the Lord. And he could tell you about life and tell you about wisdom. But man, y'all, I know some of you, I know some of you are in relational conflict with people in the church. And it's hindering you from experiencing the fullness of what church ought to be. And so I wanna give you some good encouragement, right? This is godly wisdom on how to handle some of this relational conflict. Romans 12 Verses 17 through 18 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't y'all get revenge sometimes against each other? Well, she said something to me, and I'm going to say something about her, and she did this, and I'm going to do that, and he did this, and I'm going to kick him, and, you know, um, you want to just, you're mad, right? They said this about me, and I don't like it, right? Right? And sadly, that happens in the church. There's church conflict. It happens. So how do you navigate such those kind of relational conflicts? Here you go. This is not in your notes. This is all free. Write it down. Ready? I didn't make a bullet point for this one, but here it is. Number one, remember humility. Start with humility. If you are in relational conflict with someone, Start with humility. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means you need to understand the condition of your own heart first. Ask yourself the question, why am I so upset? Why am I so upset? Start with humility. Don't start with pointing finger. You hear me? You hear me? The first thing many of us do Many of us do it. I'm guilty of it. Many of us do. We always throw mud first. We do. If somebody wrongs me, guess what? Ooh, I'm coming after you. And many times, it may not be a physical coming after you. It is a verbal coming after you. I will put you down with my words every single time. And that's throwing mud. That's throwing mud. But in the middle of relational conflict... Humility first. Look at your own heart. What's the condition of your own heart? Ask yourself why I am in such conflict right now. And many times that starts by backing up, not by stepping forward. Take a step back. Look at the condition of your own heart. Start with humility. And then you can start to engage. Number two, humility first. Number two, self-control. Self-control This is a big word, but I'm going to say it. Impulsiveness kills reconciliation. Self-control. Bite your tongue. Hold your words. You hear me? You hear me? The church ought to be a place where we can work things out. Self-control is number two. Number three, you ready? Number three, gentleness. Choose words that have the best chance of being heard. Your rage monster, when you're hurt, does not help anything. Never has, never will. But gentleness... And that gentleness comes from the words that you say and how you go about saying it. Some of you have probably never gotten this kind of advice. I'm just sitting here and just had an epiphany. Nobody has ever taught you how to handle relational conflict. Oh, your parents may tell you, just don't do this, don't do this, do this. But I don't think anybody's told you a biblical way of handling conflict. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do, teach us. Teach us. Start with humility, self-control, gentleness. Choose your words that have the best chance of being heard. Number what, four? Integrity. Integrity. This is what this integrity means. Own your mistakes. If you are the one that caused the conflict, own up to it. And I'm talking to the men in the room. Because men... Your pride is going to hold you back from admitting your mistakes. You will. I didn't do it. That ain't me. Those are all words that all the guys in the room have said. It was you. It ain't me. That's pride. That is a self defense mechanism of pride. And having integrity in the middle of relational conflict is owning your own. I'm sorry. It was my fault. If you're in conflict with your parents, oh, this is a big thing. If you're in conflict with your parents and you can't, you always are fighting, look at your own heart, humble yourself, own your own mistakes and just see what happens. Because many times it's their fault, right? When you get in trouble, it's their fault that you're in trouble. You're the one doing this to me. And so you get mad at your parents and you're like, right? But the whole time you did it. You were the one that was late for curfew. You're the one that sent the text message you shouldn't have sent. You were the one that did all those things and you blame your parents for that? A man of integrity will own his own mistakes and simply, I'm sorry, that's me. Integrity. Number what, five? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Ask for it and offer it. So have humility, self-control, gentleness, integrity, Forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry for what I said. And then even to offer forgiveness. Like, I'm making myself available. I want to let you know that I'm willing. This relationship, this friendship is important to me, and I want to do the work to make sure that we're okay. And it is possible. I'm just going to say it is possible to not be friends with everybody. It's possible. Forgiveness, ask for it, offer it. And the last encouragement about navigating relational conflict that's not in your notes, but I'm giving it to you, is reflection. Reflection. What is God doing in your life? What is God doing in your life? Why am I going through this conflict? Why why are the things happening the way that, and God, what are you teaching me about me? What are you teaching about my character? What are you teaching me about my integrity? What are you teaching me about you? And having a godly perspective about some of the conflict that you're going through. Instead of shaking your fist at God and saying, why did you let this happen to me? Maybe open your hands and say, God, why is this happening to me? You see the difference? That you would grow in your relationship with the Lord. You would grow even as a person and as a Christian through the conflict that you may be going through. So six principles that the church ought to be about. You want me to review them? Because I went so fast. Focused on Jesus. Number two, selfless for one another. Number three, Concerned for the lost. Number four, Led by the Spirit. Number five, Enduring through difficulty. And number six, Overcoming relational conflict. Six biblical principles on how the church ought to be. Now, I know it's finals week. I have a little exercise that I want all of us to be a part of. It's not a test. Aren't you lucky? Aren't you thankful? No test. Steve, don't give me a test. I'm at church. It should not be a test. Although this is, should be a place of learning. But anyway, um, I just talked about that. Uh, Grace and Berkeley are going to be passing out surveys. Eric, you want to help? Caitlin, you want to help? I can't. let sit right over here. Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna choose, I want everybody to take a survey. And I'll wait for just a second while these are getting passed out. But this is a survey that goes through the six principles that I just taught you. It goes through the six principles. And I'm going to give you about, you know, probably a minute or two. I'll get you, I'll get you the final thought here just a minute. We're going to take the survey, then I'm going to give you the final thought. Because some of you have got to fill in the blank. I got to. what? No, it's not a test. I promise. I know it feels like it, but it's not. Okay. Shh. Just a second. Shh. So as they are passing out the survey, you can take a look at it. It's only six little, it's basically rating you. And here's the thing. Listen up. Shh. Don't fill it out yet. Don't fill it out yet. Hold on. Don't fill it out yet. Don't look at it. Here's the thing. I'm not going to take this up. There's a reason why we did it on a QR QR code, because I want you to keep it. If we did it on a QR code, you'd disappear it on your phone. Anybody not get one? A couple more right over here, right behind you, Bert. Um, And so I want you to put this in your Bible, or put this in your pocket, or put it in your backpack, whatever you need to do. But I want you to hold on to it and keep it. So I just want, quietly, I just want you guys to look at those six different principles. You can read through the Bible verses that I mentioned earlier. You get, It's pretty self-explanatory, one being not likely, five being likely. But there's six different principles, and I want you to think about you. Don't think about Bellevue. This is not about Bellevue. This is not Bellevue survey. This is you. How are you at focusing on Jesus? How are you about selfless love? How are you? Does that make sense? Think about you. I'll give you another 30 seconds or so, and then we'll move on. I think when God created the church and we see the forming of the church, basically you can read the story of it in Acts chapter 2. That's where it kind of starts. The whole book of Acts is about how the church got started. He created it for you. There's some intention behind why he created the church, and the church ought to function in so many ways. And we read these, and all these six principles come straight from Scripture, many of them from the book of Acts, because that's where God was really forming the church. Here's the final thought. The church is you. The church is you. The church is not, it's not, it's not the chair that you sit in. It's not the concrete floor that we get to scratch up every week. Because this building, as big as it is, is deteriorating, it is falling apart. From the very second that they broke ground on it in 1996, it is falling apart. We have replaced the carpet how many times? Three different times. Three very different colors. But this thing is falling apart. Y'all, this is, it's just a building. The church is you. And how is the church going to um, get passed on to the next generation? it's through you. And how you view church matters. What you think about church matters. And if when we talked started this first conversation, I asked you to ask a friend, you know, hey, what do you think church ought to be? Hopefully some of those that conversation revolved around some of those six principles. Because this is the way God intended us to be. This is how God intended us to act. This is God how God intended us to help one another, to generously serve, to be selfless, not selfish. And I know for some of you, that is so hard to not think about you. But I'm telling you, when you start thinking about somebody else, ultimately Jesus and somebody else, and you wanna care and be uh, mindful of them, that's when church starts really starting getting to be church. I'm gonna make a very strong and generic statement. I hate drama in the church. That is a very strong statement, and I know it is. And I've been doing student ministry long enough to know that many, much of the drama that happens in the church happens in the youth group because you can't get along or you refuse to get along or you try to play favorites and you live in this life of comparison. That's just me being honest. I've been honest with you this whole semester and many of you need to get over yourself and start choosing to love first and humble yourself and really begin to look deeply within you in your own heart and your own life and quit pointing the finger at somebody else. Have the integrity, have the character, have the gentleness that's necessary to be able to live <laughs> live with those around you. People are sinful and they're gonna disappoint you. It's gonna be the condition for the rest of your life. And not everybody's gonna be friends with you. And not everybody's gonna like you. But that doesn't mean you throw mud. That doesn't mean that you throw hatred and different words and act certain ways. It's not what church ought to be. It's not. And so some of us in the room need to have a real good heart check about why you come and what you come for. And I'm not telling you to run from Bellevue I just want you to be who God created you to be. A church that focuses on Jesus, is selfless in their love and desires to see other people succeed and to see the power of God work in everybody else's life. That is what church ought to be. That is what HSM should be. Don't you think? Can you imagine? Just imagine with me. What would happen if we actually lived out all six of these principles. Just imagine it. I think this room could not, we couldn't get enough chairs in this room because I believe that people want to be a part of a church, a body of believers that focuses on Jesus, selfless in their love and desires to see the betterment of other people around them. We ought to be good encouragers of each other good encouragers of each other. And sadly, we're not. I will call it like it is. I will tell you like it is. HSM is not as encouraging as it could be. And I'll be the first to own it because I'm the shepherd of it and I'm the leader of it. So I need your help. I need your help. Let's let this church be exactly what it ought to be. And it starts with you and I starting to live it out. And to say, you know what? In the moments when I am at odds with someone or I'm at conflict with one another or I just don't like it many times, it's me that needs to be fixed. It's me. I need to look inside instead of pointing my finger at somebody else. And I'll be honest with you. I'm going to be honest again. I think our underclassmen really need to step up in this area. I'm calling it out because I love you and I believe in you and I believe in what God's doing in you and the drama that's going on in the underclasses, mm, it needs to stop right now. It really does. And I think you know why. I think I explained it pretty good. And so let's step into the reality of what church ought to be and let's all do it together. I believe in you. I believe in you. And I'm your biggest fan. I mean, I'm here. I'm shepherding you as best I possibly can. And that's what we're about. And that's what I want us to be about. And we can do that. We have an incredible summer where we have an opportunity to really get rid of school and let that distraction be gone. And we can actually enjoy one another and have fun. Let's just have fun being the church this summer. Can we do that? Let's hang out together. Let's play together. Let's let our differences die. Let's just love Jesus a lot. Let's just be passionate about worship. Let's just see our friends come to faith in Christ. And good Lord, let's have a good time doing it. You know what I mean? So, thank you for that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for all that you are and all that you have done and all that you're going to do. And so Lord, please, please God, Take over, take control, do what only you can do. Help us God to be the church that we ought to be.